Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And to the angel in the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, let me recap, because this is the last of the seven letters that Christ sends to the churches in Asia Minor, Turkey, modern Turkey. It's the last of the seven. So up to this point, it's been a few weeks, but we've gone through three chapters. And point of Revelation is, as I said in the very first sermon, is Revelation presents you with these really stark and bizarre images. And it's on purpose. It's meant to purge, to drive the images of the world out of your mind and replace them with these images. Because remember, everything you see in the world tells you how you're supposed to think about it. The newspapers and media tell you how you should think about life and about how, what is success, what isn't success, what is good, what is bad, what's a good husband, what's a bad husband, whatever it is. And those images tell you how to live. Revelation comes with startling images to drive those images out and say, despite what you see here, there's a reality that is behind them, like the great and wonderful Oz behind the curtain. And those images come powerfully to cleanse your palate, like the palate cleanser at a wine testing. And then... After that, he presents this image and says the dominant image of Revelation that you are to keep in your mind at all times as Christians, not just when you're reading Revelation, but at all times, is the image of that Christ that he sees in chapter 1. That is the dominating image we'll return to time and again throughout the book. And then before jumping into the bizarre images about victory and the future and all these things, he takes time to send letters to the churches. And he says these, before you're gonna, if you're going to have any hope of enduring as a Christian, you must get your house in order. And so he sends these letters to the churches to say, here's what I see and here's where things have to change. And then he encourages them. And this is the last of those letters. And in this letter, it's impossible to avoid the problem of pride and, humil and the good thing about humility. So pride and humility are on display here. And I'm going to break all the rules. It's a four-point sermon. We're going to see the root of pride, the deception of pride, the death of pride, and then lastly, the power of humility. Okay? So the root, deceit, death, and power. So let's jump right into the root. It won't be any longer, though, because it's four points. So first, let's start with Laodicea, and we'll put up a couple pictures here of what Laodicea looks like today. It is the last on this circular road. It's a circular road of the mail route that the mail would have taken in the ancient times. The last one was Laodicea, and it was an incredibly wealthy by far the most wealthy of all the cities. So much so, you can see the next one. In fact, they just, um, here's an amphitheater. They've, you see the cranes, they're, they're doing concerts in this thing today. So it was a fabulously wealthy city. So wealthy that every gate opened onto a major trade route to the north, south, east, and west. 
So money was just flowing in. It was so wealthy, it was a center, they had banks. It was the central banks of, of the region, all kinds of banking. So wealthy that there's two things worth noting. One, when the city was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD, and the emperor said, here's some money to repair it, they said, no thank you, we don't need your money. Which is, could you imagine us not accepting money from the government when they said repair something? And they said, no, we've got it covered. So much so, again, that when they were asked to take up a collection for some Jews that were struggling in Jerusalem, they raised what the equivalent today would be $620,000. That's a lot of money. A small church, right? It was 22 pounds of gold they came up with, which is an incredible amount for a church. Remember, we're not talking megachurch here. We're talking wealth all over. So they were fabulously wealthy. But there's three things they were really known for. Wealth was one of them. The second one was black wool. There was in this, it's the Lycus Valley, you'll see a picture later. Um, in this valley, there was sheep there that, that were native to the area that were black. And it was very rare. So they became a fashion center. They were exporting black wool. And it was the talk of the town. You, you, you want to be dressed in that. It was the Canada goose of its day. And it was, so they were well known for that. And the third thing they were known for, and it gets play in various philosophers of the ancient world, especially a doctor named Galen. If you're a medical doctor, you've probably heard that name. He was an ancient doctor who wrote, wrote a lot about ancient medicine and surgery. And in it, he mentions that the medical school at Laodicea had developed something that was a salve or an ointment for the eye that could stop myopia. myopia. So it could, it could help heal eyes that were going blind. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But that's what they were known for. And all of this led them to be an incredibly proud nation, uh, city. Very proud. The church absorbed that pride. I've said it before. You can't spend time in a Starbucks without smelling like coffee. And you as a church, can't spend time in the world and pretend like you don't smell like the world. And so the church, though it was meant to be humble, became very proud. And Richard Cecil, who is a guy who worked with, uh, not worked with, he's a collaborator with William Wilberforce, uh, to help uh, stomp out slavery in the British Empire, had this to say about wealth. An accession of wealth is a dangerous predicament for a man. First, at first he is stunned if the accession be sudden, and he's very humble and very grateful. Then he begins to speak a little louder. People think him more sensible. Soon he thinks himself so. And this is the case. It's inevitable. If you don't know people like this, or if you're not one of the people, you've, been, you've seen it somewhere. It's difficult to be successful and not think that you're awesome. You begin to believe your own social media profile. And this is the case here. And what Christ is saying in, the, in verse 17 is he actually quotes them. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And that is the problem with the root of pride. The root of pride is found in the garden and in all of us. We are desperately trying to make a world for ourselves where we don't need to trust God. Let me save money for my future so I don't need to trust God in my retirement. Let me work out so that I don't have to trust God for my health. Let me make myself indispensable at my job so I don't have to trust God to keep me employed. Let me pad my resume. Let me have lots of six children so you have a pension forever. You know? It's, we're often trying, and the Bible is so, so upfront about it, and this is actually secular humanism, right? This is what the modern age thinks. Secular humanism today says, we don't need divine intervention for anything. Given enough time and money, we'll solve our own problems. We'll make it work. Don't worry. And this modern issue is not that new. It's happened forever. 
And the Bible says that this is the condition of man, is to always be searching to make their life and insulate themselves from faith. And let's use one example. I'll preach it one day maybe, but Cain. After Cain kills his brother and is kicked out of the kingdom, there's a few things he does, and what he does is very important. I won't blow it because one day I'll need this sermon. But part of it is, one of the first things he does is he builds a city. And anthropologists know why we build cities. And if you studied history, you know why. Because Carl becomes a farmer, and I have vegetables, but I also need milk and meat. So I need to get near somebody who has livestock. But I also need tools and implements, so I need to be near a blacksmith. And then I need to be near a market, and maybe doctors. And so we gather together in a village. But then in time, I have to protect that village against raiding bands, so I create walls. And I need an army. And before you know, I have a city. But what has the city been built for? To protect me. If we're not careful, a city, which is a good thing, becomes a means of insulating ourselves from God. Tower of Babel is a good example. We haven't talked about the tower. If you read it, you'll notice the thing they were building was a city. Let us build us a city, and at the center of it, a tower. And the point is that we're always trying to do this. And it's not necessarily bad. You see, this desire for this individualism, it's all about me, is not necessarily bad. Independence from God is bad. But individuality is not always bad because if Israel wasn't aware of the fact that it was different from the rest of the world and it stood out as an individual and it had individual integrity as a being, then it wouldn't have stood out in Canaan. The church wouldn't have stood out in in Rome. Um, William Wilberforce wouldn't have stood out in a world that said slavery was okay. Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't have stood out in a world that said segregation was right. In fact, where would we be today without a sense of individual integrity when we talk about things like abortion? The individual has value. And so individualism is not bad. But we echo Don Carson, the theologian, who says, sadly, the sad fact is that we human beings will corrupt anything and everything we touch, including individualism. And let's use an example of how subtly this pride and this desire to be separate from God shows up. And it's an example of something that's good, but can also be bad. And randomly thinking this week, I thought, how about how many people live alone today? Nothing wrong with being single. 28% of Canadians are now single forever. Highest number ever. And that's okay. The number of people living alone has doubled since 1981. Again, not necessarily bad. But a sociologist named Eric uh, Klinenberg has this to say. Uh, Where is it? There it is. Living alone serves a purpose. It helps us pursue sacred modern values, individual freedom, personal control, and self-realization that carry us from adolescence to our final days. Living alone allows us to do what we want, when we want, on our own terms. It liberates us from the constraints of a domestic partner's needs and demands and permits us to focus on ourselves. Now, nothing wrong with being single. In fact, in the summer when I preach on marriage, single is one of the sermon topics because Paul was single, Christ was single. That's not the issue. But you see what he's getting at. There's something, there's this, in this disguised individualism, this desire to be separate and not reliant on God and on anything or anyone that is latent and found in here. This, that I, I, want to have every, I want to be able to focus on myself, what I want, when I need it. It's about me. And this is so everywhere that we allow our children to suck it in all the time. Who's, who's ever watched Frozen? Yeah, if you have kids, you know those songs. Like, I can sing half of those. You don't want it, but I can do it. And in one of the songs, the big title song, Let It Go, Elsa, there she is, 
says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. See what's inherent in that? I am me. I choose. I don't need the constraints of a God. I don't need divine help. I don't need my sister. I don't need anybody else. I'm me. I'm free. And this idea runs rampant. And so the, 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 the root of pride is this desire we all have in us that we're excuse me, constantly trying to run from God and to build a place, a life, that is free from needing him. We're all doing it. So that's the root of it, that pride. And we don't think we need him. But then we have this deceit, because pride is a liar. It lies to us constantly. So the most popular, probably the most famous line in these letters is that one we read earlier. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It actually says, I will, I will vomit you out of my mouth in the Greek. So it's pretty harsh. Now, I've heard this preached so terribly sometimes and understood so poorly. So let me just say what I've heard people say. People sometimes say, listen, God would prefer that you're either on fire, you know, you're charismatic out there healing people, giving out tracts, you're like, woo, Christian. He wants you to be hot. Or he wants you to be cold, meaning just be an atheist, be Richard Dawkins, just be a, a, a pagan. But because you're in the middle and you're just wishy-washy, you're useless to God. If that's the way you've heard it preached, it's wrong. There is no way the God of the Bible is saying, I prefer somebody who doesn't believe me than to the one who believes in me but is not quite thriving. It's nonsense. He's not saying that. And the reason we know it is because geography. So now we're going to bring up a little map of the region. Laodicea is located at the bottom of the Lycus, on the south side of the Lycus River. And it was known as having a part of this trinity of cities along with uh, Hierapolis, and Colossae. So if you've read the book, the letter to Colossians, Laodicea shows up five or six times in it. Now, Hierapolis was known for having hot springs. It was uh, calcium-rich water, but it was hot, 95 degrees, super hot. It was great for healing. You know, you go there and you get healed. Colossae, on the other hand, was known for having cold water, refreshing springs. Laodicea had no natural water source for itself. So the Romans had to pump in water through aqueducts. So by the time the hot water came south, and by the time the cold water came from the west, uh, came west from the east, um, the water by the time it got to Laodicea was lukewarm, and it was so mineral heavy, it was kind of yucky. In fact, there's ancient records of people saying they throw up when they drink it. So what Christ is saying is this, I wish that you were hot, that you were good for healing. See, as Christians, your call is to heal. If you were hot like this hot water, you could heal. You'd be a healing agent in the world. Or I wish that you were cold, refreshing, at least. But the fact that you are in the middle is you're, use, you're useless to the church. You're useless to the world if you're neither healing nor refreshing. What are you? And for that reason, he finds them distasteful. He's not saying, I'd rather have an, an atheist than a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying, your pride. Your pride has made you think you don't need me, you don't need to please me, I am nothing to you, and as a result, you have no zeal. You're living for yourself now. And that pride has robbed you of zeal. And that is the biggest issue he has with this church. He's saying, it's put a spell on you. All your money has put a spell on you. And you see, in that language I, put, I say intentionally, because in that verse he says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Not realizing. Meaning, the money has made you think something that isn't true. You don't realize the reality is very different. The emperor is wearing no clothes. And those words he uses there, those five terms, 
are important. The last three touch on what we've talked about. You think you're rich, but you're poor, despite your fabulous wealth. You think you can see and you can solve eye problems, but you're actually blind. And you think you're covered by your beautiful clothing, but you're naked. And later, he says, you have to cover your shame with my garment. So he, he hammers their points of pride. You think you're something, you're nothing. And those first two words, however, I think are the most important. Wretched and pitiable. He says, you're wretched. Now, when the Bible uses the word wretched, uh, there's so many terms, but it's always used to defer, refer to not just your being sinful, like you're a, you're a bad person, that sort of thing. But instead, it has more of a connotation of helpless. So in Romans 7, up on the screen, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Meaning, yes, I'm a sinner, but it's also, I can't, I'm helpless against my sinful nature. I can't defend myself against it. Wretched, I'm helpless. In Jeremiah, speaking about the poor, the word for poor is wretched. It says, these are only the wretched. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. So they're blind. They can't see. There's, again, they're without hope. Psalm 10, 14. You, the helpless, the wretched, uh, to you, the helpless, uh, commit themselves. So the people who have nothing in Scripture turn to God. So what he's saying to them is, you think you don't need me, but you're wretched. You have no hope but me. And because, this is, this is the glory, one of the glorious parts here, you are wretched, and because God sees you as wretched, he pities you. You are pitiable. Meaning, is there anything sadder than someone thinks that God loves them, and God is saying, you're distasteful to me. You actually disgust me. Which is what he's saying. That's harsh language, but that's what he's saying. And that's pitiable. And so, it's actually the most important thing I think maybe we have to get from this sermon is this. If you and I don't recognize that we are wretched and pitiable, then we may, we're, at best, we're lukewarm. And let me explain why. Blaise Pascal was this French Christian philosopher in the 17th century. This is what he says. Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. Brilliant. He's saying, listen, if you know God, you're a Christian, but you're not aware of the fact that you are a sinner who has no hope outside of Christ, then you're going to get proud because you're going to think, listen, I'm saved because I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I give a lot of money. I'm nice to my wife. I pet my dog. I stop for pigeons in the street. Like, I'm a good guy. You know, I got one laugh there. Um, Seinfeld. That's a Seinfeld reference, by the way. Um, you know, and so if you know God but not how pitiful you are, you're going to get proud that you were saved because of something in you that is savable. And then he says the opposite is also true. If you think you're wretched, you know you're a sinner, you know you're miserable, but you don't know Christ, you're going to be plagued with despair because you're going to be thinking, I'm horrible, but there's no hope for me. The only balance for a healthy human being is to know Christ because then you're humble enough to know you're wretched but, but bold enough and proud and happy enough and, and so um, fulfilled, satisfied to know that there's a God who looked at your wretchedness and didn't despise you, though he could have. Instead, he found you pitiable and saved you. And as a result, the balance is struck. And so this, when he calls them wretched and pitiable, that is vital. If they don't see they're wretched, but yet they're pitied despite being wretched, they're never going to be the Christians that are hot or cold. They're going to be lukewarm at best, if they're even saved. So, and this is the balance. I mean, it's Amazing Grace. You know, everybody knows that song? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. 
was blind and now I see. And that idea is there. So the, the, the seat of pride is it makes you think you're okay when you're not. Okay? The next thing is, so what's the death of pride? He covers it, and this is a very short one. The one way that you come to repent, you have to repent of it, right? This is it. He says, uh, I, um, he comes and says, uh, he quotes Proverbs 3.12 and says, I discipline those I love, therefore repent and have zeal. zeal. Have zeal and repent. So that's the remedy, okay? That's the healing for pride. First is discipline. If you're not a Christian, it's going to be foreign to you when a Christian says to you something like, I know your life is horrible. I know it's difficult. And God may not have brought it on you, but he's allowed it, and he's going to use it to turn you into something. He's going to use it all. And people say, really? He wanted to teach me a lesson, so he gave me cancer? A little excessive. Really? He loves me, and he's killing off my family? He's lo- I'm losing my job? Really? That God? And I can appreciate that. I understand how that doesn't seem right. But let me say this. I have children, and when I see my children being rude to other people, I immediately discipline them. Because they, and they don't understand it, right? The kids don't get it. They're thinking, dad's overreacting. But I see that the seed of that sin will make him a miserable human being in his future. And so I am disciplining him now so that he has a better life then. As a hockey player once said to me, Shane Doan, it's easier to build children than to repair men. And so you discipline them because you're keeping them from something greater, even if they don't get it, because that's your job as a parent. Your job is to do that. And when God does it, people say, oh, no. They don't see discipline. They see punishment. And if you're a Christian who feels like you're being punished, can I just say you haven't understood the heart of God. He doesn't punish you. If you're a Christian, there's no more punishment left. It was all given to Christ on the cross. So whatever you're enduring, as miserable as it is, cannot be to punish you. It can only be to make you more like Jesus. And now let me use this example. I may have said before, an old professor used this example on me years ago. I... When you become a Christian, you have the right, you deserve to go to heaven, okay? But you're not fit for heaven. So think about it this way. I don't like the opera. I don't understand it. Um, <laughs> I don't understand it at all. But if somebody gives me a ticket, I have, I deserve, I'm deserving of the opera, right? I deserve to go. I have a ticket. However, I will hate it. I won't enjoy it. The reason is because I'm not fit for the opera. I'm deserving, but not fit. You, when you are saved, are deserving of heaven, but you're not fit for it yet. If you go to heaven, miserable wretch though you are and I am, you'll think, in fact, Janet said earlier, we're going to be praising forever. You're thinking, really? I hate these songs. I've got to praise these? I've got to do this forever? On my knees? Is there any time to like, have a coffee? Right? You're, but that's it. You would find heaven miserable in your current fallen state. And so what God does, he says, for those who trust me, I will make all things good. Remember that in Romans 8? And what he's saying is, I will take their good, their bad, and their ugly, and I will not permit it to break them because they're mine. Instead, I will turn all of it, good, bad, and ugly, to do something that will either instruct or restore or rebuke, but it will never be to crush them. So all of it is making you fit for heaven. All of it. And if you don't see that and you think God is just punishing me, right? And that's possible. Some people will say, no, God isn't restoring me. He's repaying me. It's punishment, right? To some people, it's punishment from God. I understand that feeling. I'm telling you, you're not thinking right. You're not thinking. If you're a Christian and you think that, it's because you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten how you're loved. If you're not a Christian, you're doing exactly what your life should tell you, which is the world is black, meaningless, and a void, and just get used to nothingness.
But there is discipline, and he disciplines those he loves. And so those last two words, have zeal and repent, you only repent in the face of discipline if you see it as discipline and not punishment. Because if somebody's punishing me, I don't repent. I say, I was going to say a bad word, get, get out of here, you know? You get angry. But if somebody's disciplining you and you're wise enough to see it, which is very difficult, there's a sign of maturity there, and you bow before the discipline and say, thank you that you would rather harm me and let me go into harm than to have me lose everything in the future. And that requires an incredible amount of discipline. And then, of course, if you repent, and then you zeal comes right afterwards. Because this is what you do. You take the discipline, you fall at the feet of the one who disciplined you rather than punish you, though you deserved it. And then you, of course, become a proponent of his and say, he is everything. Of course. But that's difficult. So that's the death of sin, is this discipline and repentance, or not sin, of pride. How do we then do it, though? What's the power? Because how do you become that person who sees pain as restorative and instructive rather than horrible? It's not easy. So how do we do that? Because it's easy if I just say, go feel that way. But it doesn't really help you. So what is the power by which you can actually become that sort of a person? And um, the answer is in Christ, in, in what we see right here. Notice that he comes. He's been kicked out of the church and locked out, apparently, out of Laodicea, like he has in most of the lives, and unfortunately in many churches. And yet, he comes and he knocks to get back in. Think, if Christ is who he says he is, which he is, and he is kicked out of the church, which is his, he could kick the door down. Right? He doesn't need to, why is he knocking? He's knocking because he is not you. And the book of Hosea would help you see this even more clearly. He will have you, even though you have shown that you would prefer anything to him. And he comes and he says, can I come back in? I know you kicked me out. I know you don't want me here. Can I come back in? And he puts the doorknob on the inside. But here's the key. We must answer the door. However, be clear, you would never answer that door unless he knocked first. Right? Only, only lunatics open a door and ask who is it when nobody's knocking. We only are able to open the door because he first comes and says, come on, let me back in. It's for your sake. Notice he brings a feast. He doesn't expect you. He says, I'll bring a feast with me. I will covenant with you. All those things you were searching for in your wool and your money, you've been searching for this satisfaction, but you're not going to get it there. I have it all with me. Let me in. I'll, ta- I'll bring it all with me. And he comes and he knocks. We must open, but make no mistake You didn't open that door because you saw him first, but because he saw you first. Acts 16, Paul was speaking to a crowd and says, and God opened the heart of Lydia to hear Paul's message. Lydia would not have opened her heart. She couldn't. She's turning the other way. She has no interest in God. Zero. And so when Christ comes and knocks, it's humility. In the book of Hosea, if you don't know it, it's God saying that my relationship with Israel is like the relationship of this prophet with his wife who is sleeping around all the time. And there's scenes where he talks about how he sits outside and listens to her having sex with other men and waits for them to finish and then brings her home. That sort of humility for anyone, let alone a God who doesn't need to take it, is if that doesn't strike you and turn you into somebody who wants to be hot or cold, then I can't help you. I can't make anyone believe, but that image of the gospel is there. C.S. Lewis, I quote so often because he's often so right, says this, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, was precisely nothing. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there, 
beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Now, what he means is this by depraved. He's saying even the sinner who is looking for satisfaction in theft, manipulation, pornography, murder, those are terrible feelings. Lewis is not promoting it, but what he's saying is what they're looking for is the man who womanizes wants to be, feel like a man. He wants to feel like he's accomplished something. He wants to be something. These people in Laodicea, by being rich, wanted to be valued. They wanted to look successful. They wanted to clothe themselves well to cover their insecurity. And he's saying, what C.S. Lewis is saying, those depraved desires, they're good desires, but what you seek, the way you seek to satisfy them is so broken. And you will find that if you give it all up, if you open the door and give it all up and take what he is offering, you're going to find actual satisfaction for those things, not ones that will never satisfy. And he's spot on. Even our most depraved, the worst of us, those things we want is we're yearning for family. We're yearning for belonging. We're yearning for all these things. And when Christ goes up, he's rejected for you, dies on the cross, and then shows up at the door, even though you've pushed him away countless times, and says, will you let me in again, please? Please? Like He's offering this. At the cross is the only place where we see that we are wretched and pitied. At the cross, it had to happen because you're wretched. Someone had to die for you. But you were so pitied and so loved by God that he chose to go to the cross for you. If you don't fall on your knees daily as a Christian, start doing it. And if you're not a Christian, my goodness, why are you, what are you waiting for? Run to this God who loves you like this. There's no other remedy for our pride but the cross. Let's pray.